It's not afternoon yet, which means I don't have to be a functioning human being yet. God, I can't believe we're recording in the morning. 25 to 12 now. I know, but it was the morning when we started. It's so early. It's mid-afternoon. You've got this thing about the sun. <laughs> Too bright. <laughs> oh, God, after I finish re-watching Gossip Girl, I might re-watch Gilmore Girls. You haven't sent me any pictures of good Gossip Girl outfits yet, Joe? Yeah, because I keep forgetting to pause and take a photo of my screen. Okay. I'll, I'll I'm send just you... have to watch it myself. Yes, do it. Do it. I'm, I, I just have been having it on in the background somehow. I'm at the end of season two already. Have you watched Charlie Brooker's Viral Bike yet? No, that's my little treat for tonight. I'm making mussels tonight. Mm. I bought, I cleaned them yesterday and put them in the freezer to cook today. Oh, you actually and, bought the ones that needed cleaning, on them? Well, I bought, I can, I couldn't get frozen ones, so I had to get fresh, which meant de-bearding and everything and purging. Yeah. Which, bit gross, but it means my kitchen smelled like the ocean yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I miss it. I haven't been to the seaside for forever. No, yeah, no. It's, it's it's one of those things where I love I love that smell, but if it came after I'd just debearded a bunch of muscles, I would hate that smell. If that makes no, I sense. Don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind debearding muscles. There's something no, very meditative about it. I am. Um, what are you going to cook some affairs? Uh, I'm gonna. It's going to be marinierish, but not. So there's going to be some pancetta, some leeks, white wine, cream, oh. garlic, parsley, and oh. lots of lovely bread. God, that's can't be asked to make more anything but i might make a similar sauce and do something else in it like the, to be honest as long as you can get fresh mussels they were really cheap it was like four quid for a kilo i'm t- next week when i have a bit more energy maybe like it's taking yeah. all of my willpower to do anything at the moment yeah but they're really quick to cook it's only like 10 minutes with a pan yeah no it's their prep for me so i can't be asked to but yeah, yeah, it's, it, the, the cleaning and debearding and purging is the faff bit. Yeah, especially if my hands are shit. Yeah, good point. Well, when we're allowed to socialise again, you can come over and eat mussels. Um, I had one other small bit of follow-up. Yeah. Which is we were talking about nonsense words and how fun they are. Yes. And that took me down a tangential rabbit hole. Did you start um, a revolution? I did not, I'm sorry. Francine. Look, I'm two down. days late for recording. You expect me to have done a revolution this week. Well, we weren't recording. <laughs> I just gave myself the mental image of your dog with like a little torch and pitchfork and it's made me really happy. <laughs> but you know how uh, Fry and Laurie are super into the kind of silly sounding words and yeah. normal words put in a weird order but that still sound like language? oh yeah sense. like that re- one really good sketch that's like the uh the interview sketch this is from the bbc i'll put the link in the show notes it quotes him saying hold the newsreader's nose squarely waiter or friendly milk will countermand my trousers he pauses to let his point sink in then continues one sentence common words but never before placed in that order you see hugh laurie looks at the camera opens his mouth as if to explain then decides against it um but kind of from there, it goes into something called the WUG test. Have you ever heard of that? No. So it it was kind of to prove this idea that the structure of language is something we learn before we necessarily learn the language. So I don't know, when you were a kid, I used to, if I didn't know the word, kind of fill in with a similar cadenced but not actual word noise in the middle of a sentence without stuttering kind of thing 
but apparently that's quite normal for a lot of kids. Mm. And they tested it with this thing called the WUG test because you can't really test it with words that already exist in case they already did know it. But they would make up a nonsense word and see if the kid could like work out the plurals and the past tense and stuff. So uh, fill in the missing word. This man is spowing. He did the same thing yesterday. Yesterday he spowed. Correct. Well done, Joanna. So I thought that was interesting. The WUG test. That is very cool. Anyway, should we make a podcast? Yeah, we're now an hour and a half after we intended to. So we should actually try and stick to a time frame today. Can we do a whole podcast in an hour and a half? Fuck we've already me. got our intro. We can, we can. We've done the intro. Have we? we got the intro. We've done all our tangential bullshit. If we just stick to Discworld for an hour and a half, we can do it. I believe in us. Okay, cool. I don't. <laughs> Buffy believes in you. Look at her weird blank stare. Buffy mug. I feel like... Okay, one last tangent before I do the intro. Okay. We really need <laughs> we need to make, and if any of our listeners want to do this, I'm very into it, a make you frat bingo for like, do by Friday mention, Buffy mention, tangent about bread. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to do that and I think I can. It may send me spiralling in self-hatred. But <laughs> yeah, no, if any of our listeners want Spiral to Spiral in self-hatred, check. <laughs> tangent about bread, tangent about linguistics. Yeah. <laughs> Feminist rant, socialist rant. Joanna runs off to get bread out of the oven. Francine wanders off to make coffee. Uh, prefacing a statement with this comes from a place of love, but... Sentence has more filler words than real words. Joe says so 18 times in half an hour. <laughs> a needle pulling thread. <laughs> we get worried about spoilers that aren't really spoilers. <laughs> Like, I don't uh, want to spoil anything, but there are more books after this one. Like, <laughs> don't, don't get to, mad at us. I don't want to spoil anything, but this character that has so far been in every book will probably be in the next one. <laughs> Intro us, Joanna. We should make a podcast. Let's make a podcast. And welcome to The Tree Shall Make You Frat, a podcast in which we're reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three of our discussion of Weird Sisters. We are at the end of it. Or act three, should we say, Joanna? Act three, because we're being very theatrical, darling. Yes, because this entire thing is one massive mashup of theatre references, which is very much Joanna's bag. And even slightly mine. I was vaguely thespian as a teenager. I thought it was just the way you were standing. You know, very funny food in thespia. Note on spoilers. This is a spoiler-like podcast. Obviously heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Weird Sisters. But we will wait for the traffic to go past. (laughs) Uh, It's an obnoxious one. Apologies for the poor audio quality, but uh, I couldn't be asked. There's a pandemic. In these uncertain times, Joanna... (laughs) In these unprecedented times. <laughs> I just want to go back to precedented times, Francine. Yes, is there such a thing as a precedented time now we think about it? Yeah, it's like when something's happening that's like something that's already happened. But it's never quite, is it? It's like you can't step over the same river twice. If we're looking at global I mean, time. you can. That's what bridges are for, Francine. Bloody metaphors. Never trusted them. Probably come from Thespia. <laughs> Clinging to driftwood. I am the very model of a metaphor from Thespia. Oh, now our next challenge is going to be doing some bollocks Discworld thing along to that model. Yeah, all right. I'm getting somewhere with the Elements song. I wanted to learn the Capital song from Animaniacs, but um, 
then I met someone else who could already do it incredibly well, considering he had a lisp and a very thick Boston accent. Right, so yeah. Note on spoilers. That's where we were. Heavy spoilers for Weird Sisters, the book we're on. Uh, but we will avoid spoiling future events. Everybody dies. Fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with the books, just in general, everybody dies. Yeah, sorry, that was an existential crisis, not a spoiler. Carry well, on. Could go on the make you fret bingo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that means we need to update the board. Oh, we made it to six. All right. I'll send you a picture of the six and of the zero. Yeah, thank you. God, I will finish this spoiler warning. <laughs> I'll finish. Heavy spoilers for the book we're on. We will avoid spoiling future events in the Discord series and we're saving any and all discussion of the final book, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. I like Boom. the idea of heavy spoilers being like a weather forecast. Like, yes. Chance of showers of foreboding. Uh, heavy spoilers this afternoon. So. What happened previously on Weird Sisters, Francine? <coughs> Liquor, liquor, fire and flicker, coven's meat and witch's bicker. Jingling fool and field of flowers, woman greets and jester cowers. Banging pans and missing cats, dungeons, daggers, autocrats. Villains rant and spirits grumble, wood awakens, tunnels crumble. Crowds and castles, aprons haunted, ditches deep and doyens daunted. The last straw on a camel's back sends cartwheels spinning down a track. Roosters throttled, broomsticks high. True love falls from a gloomy sky. That's amazing. While in no way illustrating what actually happened. So hopefully you've all got good memories. (laughs) You put so much effort into this, then I have to do my summary afterwards, which is a lot more half-assed. Yeah, but it's also a lot longer and more detailed. So, Oh, yeah. Tell us about Act 3, Joanna. Yes. So Granny and Nanny have a nice cup of tea and agree that they need to look for Tom John. Granny says he'll be in Ankh-Morpork. Ankh-Morpork! Because that's where everyone goes. Sorry, I was trying to do a New York, New York thing, but it doesn't scan. No. <laughs> Strangely enough, the fool has to go to Ankh-Morpork, Ankh-Morpork. Magret isn't best pleased. In Ankh-Morpork, Ankh-Morpork, oh Quell is... St- <laughs> okay, I'll stop now. Quell is suffering from writer's block because he watches Timbers Rise on a new theatre, The Disc. <gasps> Tom, John and Huell head out for an early morning quaff at the Mended Drum. An ill-judged racist remark plus an angry librarian equals a tavern brawl with much roistering and possibly a bit of rollicking. Uh, Tom, John breaks up the tavern brawl with a beautiful speech and one arm upraised in a declamatory fashion. Huell and Tom, John's pub crawl is rudely interrupted as they rescue the fool who's come to Ankh-Morpork from a licensed, if over-enthusiastic, mugging and Tom, John manages to turn a profit. The trio find themselves somewhat tipsy in a dwarf bar singing about gold, 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 and I think gold. Later the same day, the fool has hired Huell and the gang to write and perform the play, which is apparently the thing. Tom John dreams of witches round about a cauldron going. Huell starts writing aggressively and starts heading towards propaganda via panto. Tom John, Huell and the lads set off for a summer tour to take them to Lanka with the witches looking on-ish. On the road, Tom John's magic tongue finally fails him during a robbery. Luckily, the witches intervene... God damn it, Francine. <laughs> you put that in, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> Luckily, the witches intervene from a distance with a handy milk jug. As the troop reaches Lanka, a trio of humble wood gatherers, Lorks and Mercy, helps them on their way. Magret interrogates the fool about this damn play and uses her wiles to find out that it's tomorrow night, starts at 8, but meet in 7.30 for a sherry beforehand efface. As the witches arrive for the play, the fool whisks Magret away to a tower. 
Felmut is in such a good mood he demands the arrest of the witches. Unfortunately, Huel's axes are so good that the guards arrest the wrong witches. In a second hilarious act of mistaken identity, the real witches find themselves on stage. Uh, the witches give the actors the real words and they perform the truth of the matter, showing the Duke stabbing King Verence with his own knife. The Duke loses his shit as Tom John is possessed by the ghost of King Verence and attempts to stab the fool and then himself. Headology fails on the furious Duchess, but a thwack on the back of her head with a cauldron does wonders. The Duke insists he is dead, despite all evidence to the contrary. Stepping off a battlement helps his case. Granny explains to the masses that Tom John is now king. Unfortunately, he doesn't quite agree. Margaret appears to have come to a conclusion about Tom John and the Fool. After a little time jump, Nanny's a bit pissed after the big coronation that Margaret wasn't invited to, and Tom John and Huel are back to acting on the road. Margaret, Nanny and Granny discuss some fusion over the new king's parentage, and said new king heads to Margaret's cottage. Did he ever, like, let's jump right to the end here because of my confusion. Did it ever get explained why he didn't invite Margaret to the coronation? No, I don't think so. It's left a little bit... Not ambiguous, but because of that time jump, it's, ooh, wait, hang on, what's Margaret doing? And then, ooh, who is the new king? Yeah. But I'm assuming it's because he wanted to speak to her alone instead? Yeah. I think it's just to throw in a last bit of narrative and romantic tension. Yeah, I guess so. I kind of like that he left it weird at the end. I like that he left it weird. And I like that the book gives you room to work it out for yourself, because that's quite yeah. fun. It's almost like he gave them privacy to... Yes. Sort that out. Like, no one wants to read that conversation, really, do they? No. It's a bit voyeuristic and, and no one wants to write it. But also, like, making the fool the king and the little bits of foreshadowing that have been built up in the book mm. and the whole thing about... So so we do sort of find out what happened to Tom John's mother in that we know she uh, wasn't very good at counting. Yes. <laughs> we still don't find out, like, that why she's dead. I quite like that the unintended baby was not the king's unintended baby that quite that's a nice little reversal yeah Yeah, it's a nice little reversal of the trope yeah it's less about droit de seigneur or however the fuck you say that so yeah so that was fun uh no helicopters or loincloths um i thought you were going to put in a helicopter um did i miss a helicopter well, kind of, because um, Leonard of Quam gives the well sells the wave machine to Huel because he couldn't make it fly. Oh yeah, good point. I did totally. And miss like that. Leonardo da Vinci was meant to have skipped yeah. some helicopter or another. Yeah, that's why we ended up with the helicopter watching this. Yeah, because of Leonard of Quam, we'll get to him. Mm. So anyway, wave machine, possible helicopter, potential helicopter. <laughs> But then really, isn't everything sort of a potential helicopter? No, it isn't. That's a very dangerous attitude. And why you got kicked out of the Air Force. Uh, Favourite uh, quotes. Favourite quotes, favourite quotes. I think mine's first. Mm-hmm. This is Huel is sleeping and trying to think about what he's writing and, and making things in theatre. Mm-hmm. Huel snored. In his dreams, gods rose and fell, ships moved with cunning and art across canvas oceans, pictures jumped and ran together and became flickering images. Men flew on wires, flew without wires, great ships of illusion fought against one another in imaginary skies. Seas opened, ladies were sawn in half, a thousand special effects men giggled and gibbered. Through it all, he ran with his arms open in desperation, knowing none of this really existed or ever would exist, and all he really had was a few square yards of planking, some canvas, and some paint on which to trap the beckoning images that invaded his head. Only in our dreams are we free. 
the rest of the time we need wages. Yeah, that's very uplifting and depressing, isn't it? I just, it's absolutely beautifully written. Yeah. Like it sounds like it's this stunning imagery and you actually look at it and he's just fantasizing about putting on really good plays slash films. Yeah. I um, wonder if it calls back at all to when he was, you know, a novelist in his head, but still working PR for a nuclear power station during the day. Yeah, I think it must do. It is that, it's that thing that exists in theatre and anything creative where, yeah. Uh, yeah, in your dreams you are a novelist writing. And sometimes that comes true. But people got to eat. Got to eat. Got to eat. Got to eat to live. Got to live to something. Got to eat to live. Got to... Still to eat, tell you all about it when I got the time. Sorry. (laughs) I did a dance routine to that back when we had like a really intense drama uh, dance teacher at that. Um, It was like one of these Saturday theatre clubs for teachers. Is it like Stagecoach or? Yeah, it was like Stagecoach's rival, like the shitty rival. (laughs) I literally never did any of those things. Like I did school plays, but I didn't do Stagecoach or. BYT or SYPT, which are like two of the big local ones. You'd probably not have loved it. Like when I was in my big outgoing phase, you were in your broody phase. So yeah, like my partner did them all and he absolutely loved them. Yeah. It it never really appealed to me. Uh, Quote, your favourite quote, Francine. Page 211. On cue, someone shook a sheet of tin, tongue twister, shook a sheet of tin and broke the spell. Quell rolled his eyes. He'd grown up in the mountains where thunderstorms stalked from peak to peak on legs of lightning. Like there's more of it, but just that line. That's it. Thunderstorms stalked from peak to peak on legs of lightning. What a fucking metaphor. Ooh, right? That is amazing. I do like you love can that just bit. see it in, and it's so dramatic and awesome and I love it. Like yeah, I, I really like... hope he, I really hope he wrote that and then went, ooh, yeah. Well done me. Yeah, I really hope he pat himself on the back for that. Yeah. Good man. Well done, Prince. Yeah. It's making me think of like Greek gods and Zeus throwing his thunderbolts and this idea of like. Yeah, like the Titans all anthropomorphized weather and. Yeah. Yeah. Stalking. Fucking. Yeah, that's really good. That whole page is also great because just before that, we have the bit where Huel is like trying to really buck up the widges and he's like, what kind of hags are you? We're black and midnight hags. What kind <laughs> of black and midnight hags? Evil, scheming, secret. What then, are you? We're scheming, evil, secret, black and midnight hags. And then the imaginary Sakaar and we're doing this for Corporal Wolkowski and his little dog. <laughs> <laughs> Which movie is this from? Oh God, I don't know. Where's my... So, obviously... Got a nice little cast here. Yeah, we don't really have any new major characters because it's the last line of the book, but we do uh, see the librarian. Yep, and as you, uh, I think, correctly noted, he again has... Remains hench. Remains hench and has a little explanatory footnote, and I think you're right in that that's probably the case every time he pops up. Every time he pops up in a non-wizard's book, I don't think he gets explained every wizard's book, Uh, but I could be wrong. We'll find out. Yeah. We'll keep an eye for this as we go along. Uh, so yeah, nice to see the librarian and watch. I'm, I'm glad he's, you know, he's hanging out in the pub. He's got a life outside the library. Yeah. <laughs> Especially considering at the moment he doesn't have an assistant because as far as we know, Rincewind is still in the dungeon dimensions uh, within the canon. Uh, so you already mentioned Leonard of Quirm, who is a 
daft old chap in the street of cunning artificers. Am I saying artificer, right? Is it artificer or artificer? Artificer. That's what I thought. Yeah. But my brain so. always wants to say artificer. Yeah. No, I th- I'm pretty sure. Which I don't think it's right. Yeah. Um, I think this is the first mention of him we get. Didn't you say Maybe. that the helicopter thing already came up? Leonardo da Vinci and helicopters came up in Good Omens. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, of course. Yeah, in that case, yeah. I think you're right. Yes, it was um, Good Omens I was thinking of. Yeah, so Leonard of Quirm is like a sort of Leonardo da Vinci pistake. A mild spoiler that he's like a fun background character we'll see again. Yeah, yeah. There's like one or two books like you even get him as a... You get to hang out with him. Yeah, he's he's cool. He's a cool character. One of those books is is definitely one of my absolute favourites, but weirdly not one I've reread much, so I'm really hyped for that. Yeah. Yeah, same. Love Jingo, yeah. but then I. It it's also got like an me. all-star cast. Anyway, yeah, that's that's the future book though. We're and really it's some time away. <laughs> like next year, I think. We're just like floating through time today. That's we have achieved whatever the opposite of Zen is. Yeah, I am completely Nez. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sad. I don't have my fez anymore. I'm living in every time but the now. <laughs> Nez. That's quite Pratchetty as a concept. I think we should cling to that. What Nez, the opposite Nez, of Zen, yeah. <laughs> the state in which we record all podcasts. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do a Nez watch. That can be the uh, fr- <laughs> that can be the free square on the Makey Fret Pod. Yeah. Thing, <laughs> when, yes, when Joe and Francine absolutely refuse to settle into what they're meant to be doing, <laughs> <laughs> instead reminiscing, hoping about the future, and talking about the bread they'll eat after this is all over. God, I'm, I can't wait for bread and cinnamon rolls. The storm. Anyway. <laughs> the storm i yeah i know i didn't need to point him out again i know we've met him already, so proud of him but i love the storm and he gets his big break he spent ages I, I think learning he has the craft. most character development you're right you should have brought him back in that's good yeah he studied the great storms of the past honed his art to perfection and now tonight with what it could see was clearly an appreciative audience waiting for it it was going to take them by well tempest <laughs> another shakespeare play I also loved the moment where Quell kind of shouts to the gods and then gets his thunder. I know. I'm so happy for That's Quell. very narrative. <laughs> oh, it is. We will talk about narrative causality. We will get to that. The so wonderful thing it. is because Pratchett is so self-aware and meta about it, he can do all these ridiculous, like, when he shouts for thunder, he gets thunder because I know what I'm doing and I'm going to point it out. <laughs> yeah. Like and, in, can, in a, and it doesn't come across as trite or stupid it's very fun. self-aware and fun yeah that's it yeah it's it's you can tell Pratchett is having fun writing that and we're having fun reading it and Wells having fun despite himself with a thunderstorm <laughs> turning up the storm's having a great time oh, everyone's yeah. having fun isn't it nice it is nice and fun speaking of nice fun death tap dancing what? oh right okay <laughs> So death death turns up and uh, hangs around backstage and helps the guy with his lines and he's just alone in this dressing room and there is a couple of really beautiful lines in this passage this is on page 225 read them to me there was something here he thought that nearly belonged to the gods humans have built a world inside the world which reflected it in pretty much the same way as a drop of water reflects the landscape and yet inside this little world they had taken pains to put all the things you might think they would want to escape from hatred fear tyranny and so forth death was intrigued they thought they wanted to be taken out of themselves and every art humans dreamed up took them further in he was fascinated and it's very good yeah we've gone in and out uh and we will keep going into like this whole idea of theater as a mirror and the power of it and the magic of it uh-huh. but 
to do that with just it's really nice to see that from death because death is outside humanity within these books yeah it's the the outside observer yeah he, he almost he fills in the role of like the alien from outside trope doesn't he yeah uh, it's some of the, in a very knowledgeable way a lot of the really lovely books that kind of feature death heavily involve death trying out some aspect of humanity like in more he tries you know having a job and being a person and there's some other really lovely stuff he does yeah um where he tries to sort of be a bit more human and doesn't quite get it yeah it is um it it is yeah it is kind of beautiful because you get to see it from a you get to see the beautiful parts of humanity from from an outside perspective and also some of the shit ones but he never lingers on those as much no, death is a very lovely. I mean, I like I. We've talked about how lovely death is, and he is a very sweet character who wants to believe the best of the humanity around him, mm. as much as he claims to not have any emotional investment. And he tap dances. Yeah, and freezes and forgets his lines. <laughs> yes, because like, no matter how confident you are, if you are not used to being seen by a large group of people, it is terrifying. Yeah, see me freezing up and forgetting my lines. I never have. I've done it once, which was a poetry gig, and I planned on doing it without them written down, and then I completely froze and just could not remember what line came next and had to pick up my phone and do it from that, which was embarrassing. But the poem was about stage fright, so it kind of worked. Hey. <laughs> I just <laughs> That's pretended a bit of luck. <laughs> yeah, I just pretended it was part of the performance. Nice. Um, um, so yeah, the Duchess on the other, like... Oh, this is one of my favourite... Almost on the other end of the spectrum from death, weirdly, isn't it? It's uh... Yeah, she could not give a fuck about humanity. Yeah. And has very little herself. Whereas this death is, one... is like an optimistic nihilist. The Duchess is like a narcissistic misanthrope, isn't she? She's really odd character. This is one of my favourite character beats in this book, though. It was one of my favourite character beats Pratchett ever does, uh-huh. is... Um... This idea of Granny doing headology and making her confront herself and her mm. response just being... Yeah, fuck it, and what? Yeah, yeah. It's very, like, first of all, you get horrified by, like, horrified and, like, mm, uh, impressed by Granny's, you know, the worst she can do kind of thing. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. It's like that whole concept of hell being, you know, having to watch your life over from an outside perspective or whatever. Um, And, yeah, then you get, like, a paragraph of that and then you realize oh no shit she is like super duper evil <laughs> yeah i think it's a really great way of writing a villain because that because it could end there it could end up with her suddenly awful and remorseful for everything she's done but mm. just going no she is just that much of an asshole she is already completely self-aware and confident in her willingness to kill and set fire to herself it's a really interesting exercise yeah. in villain writing she had the moment of horror though didn't she she had this uh her lips drew back in a rictus of terror. Her eyes looked beyond and she makes a little whimpering noise. Yeah. So um, like, I, I wonder if like she, I don't know. She's like, I think she does have that moment where the walls, because granny sort of says I've knocked down the walls she's built yeah. up around herself. I think she has a moment of it and the sheer hatred of someone getting into her head just makes those walls come up stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. Yeah. So you think like she just rebuilt, as they came down kind like, of thing. Yeah. 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 It's really fascinating to me. And going back to my unified theory of Nanny being stronger than Granny, Granny, what Granny does doesn't work. Nanny hits her over the head with a cauldron and knocks her out. Now, 
is it that granny is it that nanny is stronger than granny or do you think that nanny is simply wilier my argument is that nanny is the more powerful witch and i'm not just talking about magical power okay. i'm talking about getting shit done uh, because, you know, we've talked about this theme that comes up really regularly in the witches' books and the wizards of uh, sometimes the best magic is knowing when not to use magic. Yeah. Granny goes straight for the headology and trying to break the Duchess down. Nanny picks, doesn't bother with magic, picks up a cauldron and hits her over the head with it. But to be fair, only after she's seen that Granny's worst hasn't worked. True. But Nanny's actions still work where Granny's don't. Yes. It will be interesting to look at, I'm just mentally flicking through the climaxes of all the witches' books in my head. Um, yeah, it will be interesting to look at again through that lens. Um, yeah. I, I think I think you're probably going to be right that Nanny ends up, possibly possibly influential might be the word. Yeah. I think powerful, powerful covers what I mean about using magic and not yeah. using magic. Yeah, yeah. But it's not um, something to prove or disprove, it's just a fun lens to look no, at the witches' book through. Yeah. I like um, when you were saying last week, you brought it up after uh, the cartwheel incident. Cartwheel? Uh, when when Nan- Granny loses her shit and makes oh, the yeah. wheels fall off the cart. Sorry, I was like, who was doing a fucking The cartwheel, cartwheel? incident, you know, God, Joe, <laughs> can't, can't I just vaguely put words together and you know what I mean? I mean, usually yeah. yes, which is why I value you so much. Gra- um, yes, <laughs> Granny is so powerful that in her fury, a cartwheel falls off. Nanny is so powerful, she can calm Granny the fuck down by slapping her. Yeah, and it's it's almost like I I wonder if Nanny doesn't have a kind of hidden reserve of that magical power that she doesn't use because she's able to slap Granny during that kind of like I almost imagine a normal person going to slap Granny during that kind of episode and their hands fall off or turn into frogs. Yeah, no oh, frog hands, like frog hands or frogs forehands. I'm not sure which is worse. I was thinking frog's forehand, so like the yeah. back of the frog attaches to your wrist and then instead of fingers, there's like four little legs and a tongue. Because <laughs> having frog hands would probably be okay because like they can climb, like tree frog hands would be pretty useful yeah. if Many not very climb. attractive. <laughs> I, I haven't put much thought into how attractive my hands are because I'm a chef and they're covered in burn scars. I mean, yeah, but they are not amphibious. Yeah, <laughs> that is the best thing I can say about myself <laughs> is that I'm not amphibious. Oh, really? It's one of my main weaknesses. And the pork. What do you have to say about that, Joanna? There's a little reference to this and we will... Uh, don't tweet us. We know this is based on a real thing. And I know in a later book that there is even a note about this being based on a re- real thing. But this is the first instance of pointing out that in Ankh-Mall Pork, you just built more stories onto your house as the city floods. What is it? Is it uh, London it's based on or Amsterdam? Or There's a few different cities. Uh, when we get to the book our podcast is named after, mm-hmm. it's a whole plot point and there is like a big note explaining that this is based on this particular city that did it in this year and stuff. Okay, cool. So I thought it'd be fun to point out here and keep an eye on it because it would be fun when it comes up as a plot point. Yeah. But we, know, we are aware it's based on a real thing. Cool. The reason I wanted to talk about more pork is... I kind of remembered that there were lots of books that just don't take place in Ankh-Morpork and you never visit there, but we're on book six and so far every book we have ended up in Ankh-Morpork. Oh, yeah. So I'm just a little thing I'm going to keep an eye on because I know the next book, we, the next couple of books we end up in Ankh-Morpork as well. Mm-hmm. I want to see which is the first book where we don't visit the city at all because I know there is at least one. It's well, going to be a standalone, isn't it? Hmm... 
there's there's definitely at least one standalone that doesn't. Uh, there's at least one witches. There's a few witches ones that don't. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that was just a fun little thing we'll keep an eye out for, which yeah. is the first yeah, book that doesn't visit Angmorpork yeah. at all. Huh. <clears throat> which is yeah, lovely. It is a. Uh, I can understand why he comes back to it again and again because it's it's something that must just be such good fun to write that location. Well, yeah, I mean the whole the uh, locations as characters, the city is like very much a main character of the books, and it's yeah. such a fascinating city, and you can tell he's having fun. Like there's more explanation of the guild system and uh, Vesinari. Uh, he's having fun world building there. Yeah. While we're talking about it, actually, do you want to talk about the guild system now? Because I think this is probably a good point for it. Yeah, this is this is relevant. So the fool gets robbed, uh-huh. but they are trying to help him out because everyone does get robbed a certain amount. And there is a really long footnote that explains the guild system. Um, enviable system of licensed criminals is much to the current patrician, Lord Vetinari. Yo, love him. Uh, he reasoned the only way to police a city of a million inhabitants was to recognise the various gang and robber guilds, give them professional status, invite the leaders to large dinners, allow an acceptable level of street crime, and then make the guild leaders responsible for enforcing it, on pain of being stripped of their new civic honours, along with large areas of their skins. Hmm. Uh, so this is kind of pre-Ankh-Morpork policing, which is something to note for a couple of weeks' time. Hmm. Criminals are the police force. And I think it's fa- it's a... Fun, clever bit of world building. It's really exciting to see it because it's slowly built up over the last few books. Like we've had the Assassin's Guild have come up and I think we've had some talk of Guilds of Thieves before as well. Yeah. And obviously the Merchants and Commerce built Guild kind of gets invented in The Colour of Magic. Yeah. So yeah, some more fun guilds to meet. We, we'll eventually get to hang out with the Beggars Guild and the Seamstresses. And then the the mended drum was the other kind of location within the location, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so the mended drum. Uh, I just wanted to point out because obviously sometimes it's mended, sometimes it's broken, sometimes ah. it's just the drum. It's always nice to keep an eye out in the books and see what state the pub is in. Yeah, currently mended, possibly currently broken mended. by the end of this. <laughs> possibly after the roistering and rollicking. Yes, and then obviously we've got the disc, the theatre that's being built, which is obviously a play on the Globe Theatre. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which we talked about last time we talked which wasn't a podcast because occasionally we talk and don't record ourselves although we did record it in case we talked about something usable yeah, yeah. that's just us now but we didn't say so sorry listeners uh, no worries. <laughs> the, the globe is really fucking cool genuinely uh if you are listening and you're obviously the theater doesn't exist right now because of the plague when has that happened before <sighs> did it what? yeah yeah the globe was closed for two years uh theater's closed for two years so. yeah is it Black Death or the Great Plague? Um, I always get the two mixed up. Yeah, Black I think Death I'm was thirteen hundred, so Great Plague. Um, sorry, that's really interesting. Seventy-eight months between sixteen oh three and sixteen thirteen, uh, more yeah. than sixty percent of the time. Oh, there's a yeah. whole Guardian article about it. I'll send it to you. Oh, cool. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Because uh, we all need to read more Good about fact, plays. Joanna. I never thought about yeah. that. Like, ob- it's obvious now you say it, but well, you know, it's not obvious now you say it because they didn't quite grok how stuff was spreading, but they kind of got an idea just of cause and effect, didn't they? Because like when they cleaned it money, gathering. it helped when they yeah. yeah. Well, it was people thought it was smells. Yeah, which when you think about it, probably that misconception helped a lot because yeah, because it, it, for airborne diseases, if you're mm-hmm. preventing against bad smells, you're going to end up. At, 
eliminating some amount of airborne diseases. So yes, yeah, so yeah, the problem was when they thought it was like airborne stuff when it was cholera and yeah. But anyway, listeners, if you're in the UK, once once we are allowed to have theatre and gather in tight places again, because I do dream that one day that will happen again. Yeah. If you can get to London, it is really worth going to see something at the Globe because it's only a fiver to stand. So, so much of how he's describing yeah. like the mechanisms they're going to build into the disc and everything is um, stuff that is built into the Globe. Yeah. Like oh, it is? Okay, you, cool. Yeah, trapdoors and the way it's all painted. Like it, it's restored from, it's obviously not quite all exactly as it was. Did it burn many, down? Many years ago. It burned down and was rebuilt. Okay. So it is mostly the original building but obviously things have been done to it to maintain yeah. it yeah um and then there's lots of like supplementary buildings so you can go and do like a whole tour and stuff it's really fun if you're into that sort of thing and a bit of a nerd which i am yeah but they also have we do that together one day yeah they also have in the winter and obviously they can't put shows on in the globe because it's completely exposed to the elements and i have been to a production of king lear at the globe where a thunderstorm genuinely started during the thunderstorm bit oh, oh. it was so cool oh I mean, I got soaked, but it was, and so did the actors, but it was really fucking cool. Yeah, I bet they fucking, uh, well, I don't know, saying this as someone who didn't have to do it, I bet they fucking loved it, though. Yeah, it was a bit hard. You get really into it. (laughs) You can see they were, like, struggling to be heard over the noise, especially because that thunderstorm bit involves a very quiet, like, sad Lear moment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was lucky. I was, like, leaning on the stage, so I was was okay. But they also had, um, there's these like trapdoors at the front of the stage that people can come in and out of. And they had all these people in like black leotards with crazy spiky hair come leaping out of those trapdoors during the thunderstorm to kind of oh, represent wow. thunder. Which oh, I was and they right... didn't have to. <laughs> they still did it and came when ran around the audience. Yeah. I was stood right by one of those trapdoors and had not noticed it was there. So when they came out, I proper screamed. <laughs> like, girly, squeaky. The reason I obviously talk about the, the disc takes me into the fun the reason the globe is called the globe and therefore the disc is called the disc is it's from as you like it the theater version is all the disc is but a theater and all men and women are but players except those who sell popcorn like unto the stage of the theater is the world where all persons strut as players sometimes they walk off <laughs> so i like i like the early workshop we also um shout out to quiet cows the theater company i actually do still do stuff with it when we're allowed to do theater again who have a very cute postcard set we sell uh, and one of them does say like if all the world's a stage who puts away the props which is nice so much uh we have postcards uh i think we have t-shirts now i know that we have t-shirts for like members of the company because i've got one that says inmate on the back so moving on from the uh from the disc to like the, all the clever theatre references, that's one of my favourites. Obviously, mm-hmm. the whole all the disc is but a theatre and the theatre being called the disc. And... Yeah, I, I I noted a couple more just because I liked them in particular. Um, do you know if on page one ninety, this is a question marky one? Oh yeah, I saw you had a question mark for this one. Uh, or, or that's page the... one ninety three. One of his thrown away drafts was first, which he's late. He said he would come. He said he would, but he hasn't. This is my last mute. I saved it for him and he hasn't come. Like the weird stilted pause. It's Waiting for Godot, Samuel Beckett. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, well, it's meant to be a reference. God, I can't remember. It's be- I-, I know it's a Waiting for Godot reference and it's a bit <sighs> Beckett in style, but I don't know. Waiting for Godot, okay. Yeah, but yeah, there's some other great ones. There's a falling chandelier and a villain who wore a mask can feel his disfigurement, which is uh-huh. uh, Phantom of the Opera which yes. will get more thoroughly lampooned later on. And I love that book so much. Oh, such a good book. That's another um, one that um, I haven't read in ages and ages. I reread that, re-read that one quite often because it's like a nice jaunt. Yeah. It's very jolly. Jolly, jolly. 
Um, what else we got? Uh, the hero of being born in a handbag. Importance a of being a God, I love that play. <laughs> I, would, I would be very surprised if you didn't get an Oscar Wilde reference. We were both proper wankers about Oscar Wilde. Oh, yeah. Still am. Still am. That was just a packed page. Page 159 had like a million references on. Square brackets, business with bladder on stick, honk. That's Again. one of the Marx Brothers, right? My favourite one was the Groucho Marx one, which was the, this is my little study. He wrote, hey, with a little study, you could go a long way. And I wish it'd start now. If you can't leave in a cab, then leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a half. Say, have you got a pencil, a crayon? Just, yes. the, just the idea of like that coming through into a disc. Like, I fucking love Groucho Marx. This is the main dainty mess you got me into, Stanley, is such a fun bit as well. What was that? Two clowns, one fat, one thin. I thought that was meant to be like a Laurel and Hardy. That I could be wrong. Yeah, one, yeah, it was probably Lauren Hardy, right? I was thinking of the two Ronnies, but you're right. It'll be Lauren Hardy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I really love this page of fucking let's do bam, 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 joke, 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 a mile yeah. a minute references because he's written this like very clever Shakespeare parody and you can see he probably had a page of notes of all these other jokes he wanted to yeah. make. And eventually, yeah. like, Fuck it, I can just put them all on a page and they'll be there. <laughs> I like the idea of him actually going, oh, and unfolding them from his own waste paper basket. Like, I've got a few extra pages here. <laughs> I love uh, that it doesn't work if you do it throughout the whole book, but getting a sudden moment of that machine gun joke, 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 joke delivery mm. is such a great moment in a book that's quite clever and takes a lot of time and thinks about itself. Yeah, yeah. And um, that he, yeah, it was a clever little vehicle for it within his clever idea of like the slew of inspiration stuff. Yeah. I'm moving into a completely different direction ish. Well, it's still dwarves actually. Um, Speaking of dwarves, <laughs> expat pride um, in da, 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 da. oh no, this one's fallen out. Page one six nine. Well, had investigated a few dwarf bars last time he'd been in Outmore Pork, and he didn't like it because the his fellow expatriates who at home were just like normal, normal dwarves, whatever. As soon as they went to Outmore Pork, started being the stereotypical dwarves and wore chainmail underwear, go around with axe in their belts and call themselves names like Timkin Rumbleguts. Timkin um, Rumbleguts <laughs> is possibly one of my favourite two sets of syllables. Absolutely. And that's a that's a phenomenon that like I've noted from experience and from various data points. Um, I, I used to work for a company that did a lot with expats. Um, we used to write guides for people who wanted to move to other countries. And it's very much a thing that British people who move abroad quite often become very British and ditto French, Australians, whatever. It made me remember like vaguely something I'd read ages ago and dad remembered where it was for me happily. It's in a Bill Bryson yes. book, uh, Notes from a Big Country. Mm. Chronicles in an, an island uh, called Ocracoke, Ocracoke, I don't know, off the coast of North Carolina. Um and the locals had like a very odd, or have possibly still, this was written quite a long time ago, quite an odd dialect and quite an odd accent. And um, it's almost possibly preserved from Shakespearean times in England, but it's very unique because Islanders quite often keep dialect for a lot longer than mainlanders for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, but the really interesting thing for me was that people who had grown up in the 50s and 60s had more pronounced accents than their parents had had. And that's been put down to the fact 
that a lot of tourists and new residents from other parts of the state started moving to the island. And so they started playing up their national identity as a way to separate themselves as like true islanders or whatever. Yeah. And people who apparently like move away from a place and then come back are quite likely to have a stronger dialect as well. That's interesting. Yeah. So nicing people is a very weird British tradition, but one that we very much still do. And yeah, I feel like people don't care as much anymore, though, right? Yeah, it's just kind of a thing that happens. But um, there's a line with page 188 mm-hmm. um, where they're looking out for Tom John making his way from Ankh-Morpork. And Magret is obviously being a bit wistful and talking about magic swords. Mm-hmm. Says, You've got to have one. You could make him one, she added wistfully, out of Thunderbolt Iron. I've got a spell for that. You take some thunderbolt iron, she said uncertainly, <laughs> and, then make a, and then you make a sword out of it. It's <laughs> like that draw an owl meme. <laughs> draw a fucking owl. <laughs> Two circles, then draw an owl. Um, but this is obviously an idea that stuck. So this is in 1988, and Terry Pratchett was knighted in 2009 for services to literature. Yeah, when I say we don't care about knighthoods, obviously we care about that specific knighthood and no others. But he was obviously quite hyped by the idea of knighthood. Um, what he, reportedly saying on the occasion, you can't ask a fantasy writer not to want a knighthood. You know, for two pins, I get myself a horse and a sword. Uh, so he had the station of knight bachelor. He, the following year, found £175 of iron ore near his home and added to it several chunks of meteorite, which is thunderbolt iron, and Ford had himself a sword forge. Like, he made most of it himself and then had a blacksmith help turn it into a sword. So he had a sword of thunderbolt iron that he, out of ore that he dug up himself did and he, had he, it made. He, he did help with the forging process as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, he hammered it himself and... I'll link, yeah. huh. I'll link to the full article on the sword because oh, it's cool. really cool. Um, but yeah, he had this sword made because Rihanna, his daughter, inherited it. And we saw that at the memorial. Yeah, he was really cool like that. Like he made a random intricate bee out of gold, didn't he? And like, well, yeah, the, then melted the, it down and did it again. <laughs> yeah. The uh, like Bernard Pearson, the cunning artificer, and Rob Wilkins and everyone kind of received the order of the honeybee as part of. That's it, yeah. Which was such a lovely part of the memorial. I still haven't listened to Bernard Pearson's podcasts because I'm saving saving them for rainy day. But I feel like we've had so many. Like we've just had six weeks of rainy days. So I'm going to listen to it yet. I'm really behind on all my podcasts. But I've listened to one of them, and it's really lovely. It's just it's nice to listen to and reminisce. Yeah. Like it's the sort of podcast I would literally listen to when it's raining outside, and I've got like a nice cup of tea, and it feels like I'm having yeah. a nice chat with someone. Yeah. So I wanted to point out the Thunderbolt Iron Sword there because obviously this idea stuck with Terry Pratchett for 22 years until he made himself one and that's fucking cool. Yes, it is. And I'm really happy for him. Right, speaking of things that don't go anywhere, Francine Rhodes. <laughs> they don't have to, you see. Um, this is this is unlike all of our, the rest of our ones this week, let's be honest. Uh, this is actually just a little bit I quite liked that I don't have much to say about. Um, <laughs> I don't know why we bother separating talking points anymore. <laughs> They're lost trying to find Lanka and say it was a nice day and as the road meandered through clumps of hemlock and pine, outposts of the forest, it was pleasant enough to let the mules go at their own pace. The road, well felt, had to go somewhere. This geographical fiction has been the death of many people, 
Roads don't necessarily have to go anywhere. They just have to have somewhere to start. Um, I like it because I've myself quite happily gotten lost in forests before because we live in England and getting lost in a forest is never going to be a permanent state of affairs. Um, yes, and, we don't have wolves and bears. Yes, and eventually I will just hit a road. Um, <laughs> uh, and also because... I, I feel like they're kind of mixing up with rivers in the head, aren't they? Like a river will go somewhere. You follow the river, you end up somewhere. And I think that instinctive bit of navigation kind of stuck with humans when it came to roads and has probably, as Patrick quite rightly said, been the death of many people. <laughs> because roads don't have to go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, it also made me think a little bit of like Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> roads suddenly stop unless yeah. there's a handy tunnel painted on it. <laughs> The Fool and Magrat we talked about last week and you had a very good genuine feminist point about the fucking stupidity of the hard to get and how it's yeah. crap for men and women. But I like the some resolution to their romance and that I pointed out there was a very sweet bit and I wanted to point it up here, which is mm-hmm. when the witches turn up to see the play and the fool has wants to whisk Magrat away to a tower to watch it, just the two, two of them. And he's made sure there's a system of water in a fireplace in case she wants to wash her hair. That is just beautiful, isn't it? Like, well, I'm not sure if, if it's a deliberate misunderstanding or like a very gentle rib. I think it's a, it's a gentle rib. And I, and I genuinely think if Magret turned around and said, nah, mate, fuck off, I just don't want to, he would yeah. have left it. Yeah. But it's kind of a, okay, you keep making this excuse. I'm going to make it so you can't make that excuse and see if you still don't want to. Yeah. And it's- I, oh, and it might be because I'm slightly hormonal, but the bit where he's left hanging on to the necklace that is a bit tacky, but she, he knows she'll love it, and she spent he spent too much money on it, uh, nearly made all- me cry. Yeah, no, it was that was bit was very sweet and very sad. Yeah, um, we'll come back to the Magra and the Fool's relationship in later books. Yay! Going on to the more serious stuff, though, the racism towards dwarves bit mm. was really interesting. It was, and it's particularly interesting and something I feel I should probably go out with a bit more delicacy than I might because in real because in round world people with dwarfism are also discriminated against so in in disc world instead of racism although racism as we know it comes up later it's mainly speciesism I think I think it's like mentioned in a joke in the first couple of books isn't it like you're not gonna have a go at someone when your next door neighbor has green skin or something yeah um um I actually think Terry Pratchett considering this is a white dude writing in the late 80s and i think he does quote well at representing microaggressions and macroaggressions um, and, and it gets to macroaggressions yeah. but the idea of like there is so much a person who is regularly discriminated against just hears and and has to not has to, shouldn't have to be thick-skinned about but is consistently thick-skinned about there's, there's a moment i can't remember if it's in this section or the last section where Tom John calls swell lawn ornament. Is this section, yeah. Yeah. And that's an insulting term for, a, like, that's a yeah. speciesist. It's a racist term within this universe. Yeah. And he's like, oh, sorry, it's just my dad calls you that. And it's like, yeah, your dad's known me a really fucking long time and has, like, earned the right to use that yeah. in a friendly way. You have not. Yeah. And I think, well, while it obviously upsets and angers him can see exactly what's happened and uses it as a gentle teaching moment rather than yeah and so from that and you can kind of infer that tom john will not make that mistake again yeah it's it's a teaching moment and he learns but there's there's another moment on the page you pointed up where uh tom john goes to stand up for well 
but Huel nudged him sharply in the knee, put up with it, put up with it, slip out as soon as possible. It was the only way. And that's horrible, but it is how some people think. Yeah. Because they... And you can imagine very clearly the sudden gut swoop when you realise that dude is going to start something. Yeah. And the kind of quick analysis of, do we have to leave now? Can we put up with it? Till it will he shut up? And then the eventual him hitting him. Uh, however, luckily in this case, the bigot accidentally bigoted against the orangutan at the same time. Which is time. not something you <laughs> fucking do. But it is, it's a well-written yeah. depiction of microaggressions turning into macroaggressions. Yeah. I like that he doesn't shy away from it and he builds it into the world in a really realistic way and it gets uh, really interrogated in later books. In uh... What do you think about later on in this book when it is the fool being a prick? I think... Dwarves? And like making casual racist jokes in the dwarf pub? I think it's exactly what a character like that would do because he doesn't know any better i'm not saying that excuses it but no, no, he no. is he literally doesn't yeah yeah he's probably never ever hung out with a dwarf before well because he lived either in a remote mountain country or in yeah. the fool's guild where they weren't allowed to go out and socialized yeah it looks like a really misjudged attempt at banter yeah it looks yeah. exactly like what someone who is socially awkward and does not know that they are being racist yeah. would do I like to imagine that the day afterwards with Hangover, Quell had a quiet word in his shell-like um, yeah. <laughs> about, you're lucky we were with you, and next time, perhaps not. <laughs> it's like a drunk dude noticing queer people in the pub and being like, you know, you know, I'm all right with your sort. Yeah, yeah, I'm exactly. all right. yeah, it's just like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and going it's like, a little too far with the familiarity, and they're like, we're going to let it go this time. But, but we somebody probably wants tomorrow. to have a word with him tomorrow in case he goes into another pub. Speaking of good writing and the power of words, mm. the power of words. But from it capitalized, yeah. Well, yeah, it the was a point. The power of words. The power of words. A false from cheese curse. All right, no. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> Me too. I haven't eaten yet today. God, we should not record when I'm hungry, Francine. Uh, so we we talked about this last week when we were talking about propaganda, but I wanted to look at it from a different angle, which is uh, the power of theatre. Yeah, okay. Um, because it's cool. There's this great scene where it's a few pages after the whole dwarf racism thing, where Tom John is giving this speech to try and uh, calm the pub down. Yeah, after the brawl has uh, properly broken out. Yeah, and he's saying. Um, he wrote this page when they need another five minutes in Act 3 of The King of Ankh, uh, and Vitola had requested something with a bit of spirit in it, a bit of zip and sizzle, something to summon up the blood and put a bit of backbone in our friends in the halfpenny speech seats, and just long enough to change the set. Yeah. And Huel is sort of embarrassed by the play, and he thinks that this is not something anyone would have actually said, but he tried to write something with bite, something with edge, something like a drink of brandy to a dying man. No logic, no explanation, that words that reach right down through a tired man's brain and pull him to his feet by his testicles. And I think in the back of Terry Pratchett's mind is probably the... Um... Braveheart? No, I was thinking Henry V. Yeah. Once more unto the... Oh. Once, once more unto the, the breach, dear friends, once more, <laughs> or close up the walls with our English dead. There is naught becomes a man so much as... And no stabbing. What was that? Sorry, what's the Pratchett line? I'm just trying to line it up to there because I'm sure he... Brothers, and yet may I call all men brother for on this night. 
So it may not, that may not be the speech he's referencing. Yeah, yeah. It might be something else. But from the description of it being a king and them going into battle, I thought it was very much once more unto the breach, dear yeah. friends, once more. It's going to be Henry V or Julius Caesar, one of the two. Yeah. Answers on a postcard. There was a great bit on Guilty Feminist, and this is now run as a regular thing, where they did like a feminist version of that speech. And they were talking about how like, it really helps you learn how to public speak if you do these big manly speeches. It helps you, you know, figure out how to stand and because you can't sort of I've just sort of got this idea of maybe we could once more yeah. go on to the breach like you have to. <laughs> yeah. Deborah Francis White does like a great feminist version of it and uh, Jessica Regan runs this big speeches workshop where she gets women mm-hmm. to come in and perform these masculine speeches as a way to help them with public speaking and Do you remember which episode that was? God, it's an old one. Um I know it's in it's in the Guilty Feminist book. I will find it because uh, I want to listen to it and then I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, I think she's done it on the show a couple of times. It's great. Um, so I really liked that. And basically everything about writing and the power of theatre to um, jump into people's minds and the magic of it and the way like no king would have actually said once more run to the breach, dear friends, once more. We would have probably just said get them, lads. Uh, but there's this great line. Um, Granny subsided into unaccustomed troubled silence and tried to listen to the prologue. The theatre worried her, had a magic of its own, one that didn't belong to her and one that wasn't in her control. It changed the world and said things were otherwise than they were, and it was worse than that. It was magic that didn't belong to magical people. It was commanded by ordinary people who didn't know the rules, and they altered the world because it sounded better. Yeah. And links us back to the whole propaganda conversation of last week. You know, we talked about Shakespeare, and it may not be true at all that he was born and died on St George's Day, but it sounds great. So, and so now it's true. That's the accepted history. (laughs) Uh, The paintings last week, and there's a bit in the propaganda thing of no one knows if this king was actually good, but history says he was good, so he will now be good forever. Boudicca's whole revolution is more fiction than fact because in the Roman times, history was a form of entertainment, not just academia. But yeah, this whole idea of Shakespeare writing King Lear during a plague, I'm sure is actually much more complicated than just Shakespeare writing King Lear during a plague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And there was... uh, there's a cool bit on this speech. I will. This is from a Medium article, which is taken from a speech that was given by... Uh, God, I haven't written his fucking name down, of course. I'll, li- I'll link to the Medium piece in the show notes. It's a guy who used to host the Shakespeare podcast for Slate.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's talking about that Henry V speech, the St. Christmas Day speech. Um, how seldom any moment in a Shakespeare play is really self-contained. Take... King Henry V's Christmas Day speech. It's a stirring piece of inspirational rhetoric. You can close your eyes and see Kenneth Branagh or Olivier rousing the troops with it. But following the action of the Henry ad, in which Henry learns how to perform as a king and weaponize language and ideas of honor in Henry IV Part One, and is then explicitly instructed by his dying father to gin up a foreign war in order to secure his power in Henry IV Part Two, it's hard to see the speech as anything but an act of propaganda. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the interesting thing with all of Shakespeare's history plays is. I mean, it was propaganda at the time. You know, he wrote Macbeth because King James was the new king. Kim James was terrified of the supernatural and witches. So he wrote, a, he's trying to stay in with the king because he was well in with the queen. He's trying to write something where witches are evil and they make bad stuff happen. Oh, okay. So this is like a, a more true to round world reference than I thought it was as a book. It's a... Yeah, yeah. He was actually yeah, trying to like paint... the backplot which... is being mirrored as well. Huh. Yeah. I like looking at the shifting dynamics between the witches because uh, I'm back to my unified theory. Mm-hmm. Granny very much holds herself apart. 
and you know she's the one who sort of initiates this argument of oh we don't really need a coven whereas magra has really tried to form this coven partly because she's the youngest and she wants guidance yeah and they do remain a coven of three regardless they they sort of can't not as much as they don't want outside help they can't not really look after each other and look out for each other because you propagandize against one which you propagandize against them all yeah enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah uh, but after a coven meeting granny leaves and magrat sort of hangs around and it's nanny she wants to talk to i think nanny's definitely the more she's human. the one you'd go to for advice and she's the approachable one yeah and it's like a bit worried about granny uh <laughs> and you can see it yeah granny's very much cl- granny's closer to the supernatural she yeah. is as is kind of hinted at late in the book like with the cackle granny yeah, is, she's al- always- is always closer to that line of being the the fairy tale witch yeah she's almost always got one foot out of the world yeah yes whereas yeah. nanny is very very firmly in the world and sometimes sort of leans out of it yes uh, but is very anchored yeah and magrat is yeah not as anchored perhaps but definitely not possibly just because she's not as powerful yeah as granny well she's not as powerful yet but it's fun watching the relationship shift and change as this book has gone on because we've gone from magrat very much being junior to being part of three and and it's a dynamic that shifts and shifts again throughout the witch's books it's more i wanted to point out here because we'll come back to it when we do the next witch's book yeah it is interesting Um, i i like granny weatherwax very very much because she is this odd enigma and i think you like nanny og the best don't you because i like nanny og the best because i want to be her when i grow up (laughs) i don't want to have lots of children or like that many husbands because that sounds exhausting i want to be the fun mad slightly eccentric old lady holding a tank and throwing parties yeah well while we're talking about granny and why we like her so much we talk about granny's anger because Mm, granny's rage is one of the best things about her and i think like um we talked a bit about terry pratchett actually being a very angry man and the piece neil gaiman wrote about that yeah and he said quite often that granny weatherwax was the character he related to the most yeah yeah um and you can definitely see that in this and sorry i'm finding that granny weatherwax was often angry she considered it one of her strong points Genuine anger was one of the world's great creative forces, but you had to learn how to control it. Didn't mean you let it trickle away. It meant you dammed it carefully, let it develop a working head, drown whole valleys of the mind, and just when the structure was about to collapse, open a tiny pipeline at the base and let the iron-hard stream of wrath power the turbines of revenge. I love this. Which is so how much. I learned how dams work. <laughs> I, I love this so much because it goes against the relentless positivity Zen culture of everything and like i although i although I, like rationally i understand that holding on to your anger whatever is probably bad for you and eventually you'll die of it i know but isn't holding a grudge fun sometimes it is fun and frankly i do think it's more effective a lot of the time and i'm not i'm not vocalizing this very well but i like i like granny so much because she is the yeah she's like the antidote to this what i consider quite a vapid embrace of all things positive to the detriment of like being able to harness negative emotion 
yeah i would rather look at how you can take on anger embrace it and do something productive with it than mm. trying to say let go anger because it doesn't serve you because you know what a sometimes it does and b sometimes it's just really satisfying to have yeah Lorks. Lorks and mercy etc um this is just such a fun thing that pratchett does you know you saying you like i was saying i like parody when it really knows the shape of what it's doing yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, pratchett's like parodying fairy tale yeah. which is as much as he's parodying shakespeare yeah. and he knows how stories work well enough to parody them so i like the very and i think it's one of the ways it comes across best is the apple cell a bit we talked about this yeah. last week and then this where he's going ah oh, yes the women pretend to be humble wood gatherers so yeah. they can give mysterious directions but we're seeing it from the witch's point of view and i like that <laughs> you know they're all sort of like fine okay do you want help across the river and do you want some lunch and oh why are we having to do this yeah. story bullshit and then yeah. eventually um yeah it's like if we didn't all have to live in this narrative stream we could just ask for directions and give clear directions the whole way but no <laughs> there's the lovely um magrets i'm just a humble wood gatherer at lorks collecting a few sticks and mayhap directing lost travelers on the road to lanka like she's just not into the yeah. fucking thing at all <laughs> just helping her look a stick okay just that way <laughs> uh and then when they get they finally get to nanny and she's just sort of like oh here's directions and well's like yo you forgot to say lorks it's like bugger sorry lorks i vaguely looked into that by the way and lorks is like lord um, yeah yeah i thought i figured it was lorks yeah. of mercy lord of mercy it was a which was probably part of like common people slang some time ago but then was used in a really heavy-handed way to show that in victorian literature i do like that nanny also goes yeah no i'll have a lift jumps in the car (laughs) smokes their tobacco thanks for the snack meals (laughs) (laughs) again i just love nanny i feel like i'm possibly blinding myself and the last thing i can't even say this word francine um well i've not tried yet solepsis maybe Um, sounds like sepsis yeah well you know me i like my random rhetorical figures you do. When, Who are you calling a random rhetorical? F- 204. Just a little line. She turned up in a green dress and a filthy temper. Ooh. Yeah. That is called slepsis. Uh, that is when one word is used in two different ways within the same sentence. Uh, can be more than two, as the book I always reference, The Elements of Eloquence, pointed out. Uh, he took this apocryphal tale uh, from journalists. Uh, where apparently one young journalist was told that his story needed to be massively shortened. And so he filed this report. A shocking affair occurred last night. Sir Edward Hopeless, as guest at Lady Panmore's ball, complained of feeling ill, took a highball, his hat, his coat, his departure, no notice of his friends, a taxi, a pistol from his pocket, and finally his life. Nice chap. Regrets and all that. (laughs) Amazing. Um, so that's obviously a slightly long-winded version of it. But yeah, actually, and that's a callback to the Groucho Marx thing as well. The the quote. Oh, you can leave in a half. Yeah, leave... Le- leave in a taxi or a half. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of my favourite bits of wordplay anyway. Uh, Selepsis is what it's called. Do you have an obscure reference for me, Francine? The bit where they're like bickering over making the potion that's going to summon Tom John back to Lanka. Um, and it's like... This is a tiger's children. A what? A children. Uh, Jason picked it up from foreign parts. I was like, what is a tiger's children? Because obviously they're trying to imply something dirty here. Um, and yeah, it's, totally... the, um, 
they're doing the witch's poem from Macbeth. But yeah. Um, and anyway, in there is their ad there to a tiger's children. I don't even know how to say that. Which this. is from the original yes. Shakespeare one. Yes. And I was looking it up and I was confused because it looks like it comes from the word cauldron. Uh, but eventually I found an annotated plays of Win- William Shakespeare volume that was published in 1801, which went back to sources from the 15 and 1600s uh, with old books of cookery. I found out that children is entrails. So it is tiger's entrails we need in this. Uh, which I hope he didn't bring back from foreign parts and put in because they would be very smelly. It's in the public domain because it's 1801, so I'll, I'll link the book mainly for the amusement of everything's written with like the little Fs, the S's, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the Fs is S's thing led to one of my absolute yeah. favourite moments in Vicar of Dibley, which I've been rewatching recently because it was on Netflix. He shall be thy sucker. Great. I think that's everything. So yep. that's the end of Weird Sisters, which was fun. Uh, we will probably. Excellent conclusion. <laughs> we liked it. It was good. We'll probably uh, normally we'd have a week off, but we're in a pandemic. It's the twenty fifth of May next week, and there happens to be an animated version of this book on yeah. YouTube. Release so it on there, yeah. So we might be back next week wearing the lilac. And if you don't know what you're talking about, we are still going to try and avo- mostly avoid spoilers. Don't worry. Yeah, but it's a reference to a later book, actually. And then the next book is Pyramids. So we'll be back week after next at the beginning of June with Pyramids. In the meantime, dear listener, follow us on Instagram at The Tree Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at The Tree Shall Make You Fret. You can email us, The Tree Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. Please send us your thoughts, queries, castles, and snacks. We like them. Uh, please don't forget to rate and review us where you get your podcasts because it helps other people find us. And with that, dear listener, as the new day wound across the landscape, each one busy with her own thoughts, each one of which alone, they went home. We are a witch alone, Joanna. Not forever. I'm a witch alone. Um, Do you want me to come stand at the bottom of your garden and shout spells? No, that's weird.